Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is W. Kamau Bell. He's a longtime friend of our show. He co-hosted it with me once back when I was just out of college. He's a terrific stand-up comic. He hosts the CNN show United Shades of America, for which he's won several Emmys. And before that, he hosted the very funny late-night talk show Totally Biased. All of Kamau's work is great. You should check out all the stuff I just talked about, but we're not going to talk about any of it today. And here I want to mention that uh, the interview you're about to hear has extensive discussions of and some uh, relatively specific descriptions of sexual assault. So please be forewarned. W. Kamau Bell directed a new documentary series. It's called We Need to Talk About Cosby. It just screened at Sundance. It comes out on Showtime, Sunday, January 30th. As you might guess, it's about Bill Cosby, who he is, what he's done, and how we deal with that. Cosby is one of the most successful TV and stand-up comedy stars of all time. He's also been accused by more than 60 women of sexual assault. He was convicted of sexual assault in 2018, though he was released from jail last year when his conviction was overturned on technical grounds. The documentary includes firsthand testimony from women describing Cosby drugging and raping them. But it isn't a true crime film. It's about what Cosby means and how we, all Americans, but especially black Americans like Kamau, can deal with what he did. Kamau talks about what Cosby meant to him as a kid and as a comic. He talks with others about the ways Cosby shaped their lives, about Cosby's pioneering work in civil rights and in television and film, about Cosby's image as a father, a philanthropist, and a moral authority, and about how we struggle to square all of that with the person we now know Cosby to be. It's a complicated and difficult conversation, one that intersects with the fabric of the American entertainment system, with race, with the justice system, the Me Too movement, and much more. But Bell says it's a conversation we need to have. So, again, we're going to get into some painful areas here, especially around sexual assault, so please be forewarned. Here's my interview with W. Kamau Bell. W. Kamal Bell, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you, buddy. It's been a while. It's good to talk to you. So um, (laughs) I read this piece from five or ten years ago where you were quoted about Bill Cosby. And one of the things that you were quoted as saying was that you were contractually obliged never to talk to white people about Bill Cosby. Yeah, that was from TMZ. <laughs> I think that was my uh, my first TMZing. <laughs> like I got t- that was a TMZ hit me up in Nashville, uh, Tennessee after a gig. And I was so confused about like, why would TMZ stalk me in Nashville, Tennessee? And yeah, I, I, I thought I handled that pretty well at the time. I mean, you know, what are you going to say? I am a white person, though. Why did that matter then? 
I mean, that was really like a way to maneuver my way through the weirdness of being stopped by TMZ outside of a Nashville, Tennessee nightclub. And I was like, not, I was certainly not prepared to have the conversation and also really didn't trust TMZ to staple me into the right, <laughs> into like the, into the right context for that conversation. Um, and it was also at a time where like, I mean, we're still at that time, but it was just like, I was like, this is not the format for this. And I wanted to figure, and that was my, I was really proud of myself for figuring out a way to do it in a way that I came off funny, but also didn't really give them what they wanted. So, yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that part of what was scary besides just never having had TMZ point one of their weird cameras in your face or whatever, is that you realize immediately that what they are asking you to do is speak on behalf of if not all black men, then black male comedians, at least. Yeah. And I think I was very aware that like, I mean, it's funny. I just went through this with this, with uh, asking people to do this documentary. Uh, we have way more no's than yeses. And I think there's a little bit of like, I know what I feel comfortable to say. I don't know what you're going to do with it. And also, I don't know. And maybe people have the same feeling when they say no to me. I don't know that this is the format for me to weigh in in any sort of real way. Like this is TMZ is not. You know, it's funny. I've been on TMZ a lot now as a guest. <laughs> so it's funny. I, when I do it as a guest, it just feels like in fun, intelligent conversations with the guys who, who run TMZ. But the the camera outside of the airport is not my way to do is not where I do my best uh, nuanced talking. What did Bill Cosby mean to you as a kid? I mean, I sort of think, uh, you know, I'm uh, 48 years old. I kind of feel like I'm the perfect age to have sort of to have sort of like been caught up in the biggest wave of the waves of his career so you know i'm too young which is not something i say about myself too often these days but i'm too young to have watched him on i spy but i'm at the perfect age to have been caught up by fat albert and the cosby kids so my first dealing with bill cosby in my life was as the host of a cartoon that i thought was great and not even really understanding that he was the the driving creative force behind the cartoon or that he did the voices. Just like, oh, that guy who's on my cartoon is he's good too. Like not like really sort of like and I think there's and I think Bill Cosby was aware of that. Like it's called Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. He was sort of like it was a a, a, a he was the Trojan horse into the lives, into the hearts of of many of America's kids. So I think by the time I actually so Bill Cosby himself comes out in early in the early 80s, at that point, I was like, I knew he was a comedian, but I hadn't really reckoned with the albums. I wasn't into the albums. I was too young. But I was like, oh, Bill Cosby from the from Fat Albert. He's got a comedy special out. I should watch this. And it's one of the first times I remember being blown away, like by stand up was watching Bill Cosby himself. Uh, many people have talked about it since even before we knew all these the allegations. It's you know, it's it's it's. As for a comedian, you go, oh yes, Richard Pryor's great. Yes, George Collins great. That's right there with it. It just doesn't have all the uh, four letter words and and explosions of those specials. And I think that special really made me go, huh? Stand up comedy, you say, you know? And then the Cosby Show comes out in '84. I'm 11, so I'm like the same age as like the as some of the kids on that show. I feel I'm I'm younger than Theo, but I sort of identify with Theo. And as I say in the doc, I was there week after week. It was appointment television. And the way I sort of have come to understand it now, working on this project, I, I don't think black folks realized it at the time, but it was like a half hour break from a, from the regular rigors of America and, and 30 minutes of just black excellence. And conceived to be such. 
Yes, and yeah, I can see. I don't, yeah, it certainly conceived to be such. And from and from what I learned from making this doc, it was that way behind the scenes. They had a lot of black people who worked on the show at all levels behind the scenes. It was, in a way, like the last of the great examples of that kind of blackness in popular culture, which is to say, blackness where it is specifically, explicitly conceived to demonstrate. Uh, great blackness to the world without without weakness. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like the the kind of uh, the kind of uh, representations of blackness that you describe emerging in the 1960s in the documentary, Cosby on I Spy, and then Sidney Poitier, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That kind of unimpeachability. Yeah. Um, you know, the Cosby Show was the greatest of those things. Like the Cosby show is a, as basically as good as a television sitcom could be. And that was its ethos. Yeah. And I think that really like it was black as, you know, the idea of being black without apology and also being like Cliff and Claire as a, as parents, as a married couple on the show, they weren't, it wasn't about how they always fought or how they always had tension and, you know, down to like, it wasn't a show about how do we pay the rent this week, which I think is an important part of it. When you talk about many of the classic black black sitcoms are end up being about the rent this week. And on top of that, it wasn't this is the thing I think that people don't even give enough credit for as a sitcom when we talk about it. And it's again, we only I feel like we can only talk about it because we're going to talk about the other stuff is that. <sighs> It was not even about him being like the dad who gets who his kids are always like sort of getting one over on, which most sitcoms, black, white, Latino, Asian are about how the parents are sort of always under attack from the kids and the kids are smarter. It's not that at all. Cliff and Claire run that house and call those kids out when they're wrong and the kids respect them, which is just like it's not even it's not a funny position to be in. And yet they figured out how to make it funny. When you became a stand up comic, which you did, you know early in your adulthood, what by then did you think about Bill Cosby as exclusively as an, as an artist? I mean, I think by then I would have, you know, if, you know, I started when I was 21, I would have not named Bill. I wouldn't have named Bill Cosby as one of my favorite stand-up comics by that point, because at that point you're like, I like Bill Hicks, you know, like, which I still like Bill Hicks, but I was like, you know, you're sort of looking for, you know, edgier, younger, more relevant people. And at that point, he wasn't really a stand-up comic. I mean, he was still doing stand-up comedy, but he was not in the public consciousness as a stand-up comic. But if we'd had a Bill Cosby conversation, I would have been able to go deep into like what I liked about Bill Cosby. I mean, I recognized, I always thought like, you know, when I, like the other comic, the, the other black comedian that I felt a connection to was Eddie Murphy. Cause that, that's, I'm at the same age where like when Eddie Murphy was on SNL, I was, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I was nine or ten, but it was like I felt like we were the same age because he was like nineteen. You know what I mean? So I felt like somewhere between the brashness of Eddie Murphy and the explosive brashness of Eddie Murphy and the, the sort of like intelligent uh, silliness of Bill Cosby, I can I can exist somewhere between these two tent poles. Like somewhere is my identity because it, neither one of them is doing blackness the way that white people have told them to do blackness. And I feel like as a black person who's also felt like my whole life, I wasn't doing it right. I can exist somewhere between these two. So, but certainly by the time I started, I was aware of Bill Cosby's influence on me, but I wasn't like directly like studying his albums as a way to sort of become a better comedian. 
uh, I think I say this in the doc and it's true that like, I just remember when I first started doing stand up and open mics in Chicago, it's almost like comics start to talk, sit you down and tell you about the secrets of comedy. And the two secrets I remember is Robin Williams steals material and Bill Cosby cheats on his wife a lot. Like these, just these sort of like, now that you're, now that you've done one open mic for five minutes, here's what's going on behind the scenes. And you know, you just sort of go, okay. And, and, and you know, I'm not, nobody, no, we're not really judging his infidelity. It's like, well, he's a famous guy. So that's what it is. But it's just interesting to me to think that like that, this sort of Bill Cosby is not who he appears to be had boiled down to the open mic level in Chicago. We've got more to get into with W. Kamau Bell. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with W. Kamau Bell. Kamau is a stand-up comic and the host of the CNN show United Shades of America. He directed the new documentary series, We Need to Talk About Cosby, which premieres on Showtime Sunday, January 30th. In this interview, as in the documentary, you'll hear some descriptions of sexual assault. So if that is a sensitive subject for you, we, we wanted to let you know. Let's get back into the rest of our conversation. When did you first hear uh, about the allegations uh, that Bill Cosby had sexually assaulted women? I mean, this is what I, you know, I was thinking about this a lot as we made the, as we made the project. Like, I can't pinpoint a moment where I like, oh, that's when I first heard about it. It was, it's sort of, you know, 2004 is when Andrea Constant's case goes public. I, I don't believe I heard about anything before then. At, but at that point, you know, media was so different. It's sort of like a thing that you sort of like, Huh. You know, it's also at that point, I think I thought so differently about sexual assault and rape and celebrity. There's sort of this thing about like, oh, some woman is accusing Bill Cosby of of raping her. And at that point, it's like, I think there's a sense of being trained in the culture, especially as a black person, to be suspicious of these things, especially as it pertains to a black celebrity. And, you know, I fully understand that there have been, you know, if you look at the, you know, the Emmett Till case, which we reference in the doc, is a clear example of like black people have it in our cultural DNA to not trust accusations from white people. So I don't think I took it all that seriously. You know, like a lot of people, I was also more focused on my own life and career at that point where you go, oh, that's. And there was also at that point, the thing I remember most is like when he was, when Autumn Jackson said that she, that he was her father. And there was that he had had an affair with the mom and he had a paternity test and the paternity test said he wasn't the dad. It was just sort of like it felt more celebrity gossip than like a thing to really take in, you know. Uh, and I don't look back on that and I'm not proud of that, but I think that's just where I was at at that point. So but it, so it's like so I remember uh, me and a comic from San Francisco went to see Bill Cosby probably sometime around that time and of the Autumn Jackson stuff. And I remember thinking, like, is he going to address this Autumn Jackson thing? Is he going to talk about this? We went, he did two hours, he never brought it up, nobody ever heckled, it was just Bill Cosby's space to do whatever he wants to do. So I think that there was really, like many people in the culture, I was engaged in a cognitive dissonance of like, this is what I'm, there's there's these stories of sexual assault, but Bill Cosby still took up so much space in my mind as a cultural icon that I wasn't really connecting the two, and we addressed that in the doc. Yeah, I have to say that in watching your film, one of the hardest things for me was that you know, a lot of folks attribute the dam breaking, so to speak, on the allegations against Cosby to 
uh, Hannibal Burris's set in 2014. And I was thinking back to when Hannibal's set went viral and I knew a lot of people found mm-hmm. out that way. I knew, mm-hmm. but you know, I think that in 2012, if you had asked me, Bill Cosby wants to come on your show, what do you say? I might mm-hmm. have said yes. And I don't know how yeah. or if I would have addressed that. And I'm ash- I'm ashamed of that fact. I want to be very clear. But I think one of the complicating factors in this entire story is the way that um, he and we got engaged in, you know, he engaged us and we engaged ourselves in complicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, from people who knew him in real life to people who knew him as the most abstract of figures. Yeah, and I think this is true across, you know, up until the Me Too movement sort of like, you know, shook Hollywood. It was what we did with everybody. It's the same thing we did with R. Kelly for a long time. Like, it just sort of like you were able to compartmentalize. Yeah, there's that weird story. And then also, if you dealt with it, you were like, ah, showbiz is crazy. They do. They live ways we don't live. And Bill Cosby had bought so much goodwill in most in many of us that it was almost like he had credit to spend with us. Like we were like, well, he did that one bad thing, but he also did all these good things. And I think that's the way in which we haven't looked at it effectively. You're acting like there's like a tally that you're adding up when really it's like, no, you have to sort of look at all of it equally. I remember, I think it was 2013, I was at South by Southwest and Bill Cosby performed in one of those like weird houses, the backyard of a house. And it was like, he was there to promote his new Instagram account, which just seems so like 2013. And I remember the time feeling like everybody, mostly people here are white. They're younger than me. Do they have a relationship with Bill? I was like almost worried he was going to bomb in front of these white. He destroyed. He did. I don't know. He did a a full set. He destroyed. Afterwards, I, I took a picture of him on stage and I posted it on Facebook. This is 2013. So this is like a year before Hannibal. So I certainly knew these stories, but I just didn't think about it. And then, and so in half my Facebook feed or a portion of my Facebook feed, people going like, yay, that's amazing. You saw Bill Cosby in a backyard in South by Southwest. And then people were like, why would you post this picture of this rapist? And I was like, oh my God, I forgot. Like it just sort of like, I realized in that moment that I had forgotten. Again, it's that cognitive dissonance that we were all engaged in. Like, I'm going to just focus on this part over here and not really, and not cross these streams. And Hannibal's joke cross the streams who did you invite on the show and how did you decide who to invite i mean so i was i you know this is a question i'm getting a lot right now we have i would just say in general we have way more no's than yeses way more it's not even close if you stacked them next to each other you would they would be like the the no pile would overwhelm the yes pile and you're calling from showtime like you have a bunch of emmys this isn't nothing yeah. reaching out. You have a, a track record. Yes. And I ha- and with some of the people, I had a personal relationship of some level, like, you know, Hannibal. Like, not like these are my best friends, but I have, you know, it's a lot of comedians that I know and have come across and have their phone numbers so I can call them directly. And so I think it's like so many people said no that it's easier just to say, <laughs> like, who's not in it? This is really the question. Like, and there were lots of different reasons for no that I – that I sort of quickly understood. And I think one of the big reasons that I sort of framed the way I framed it in my head was like, because some of the people are very public about their feelings about this and are clear that they believe the survivors, but they're like, but if I, if I sit down with you for two hours, how, I don't know how you're going to cut that together. And 
it's not like I'm like the world's most greatest documentary filmmaker. So it's like, I don't know that you can pull this off as a part of it. And it's also, maybe I've said my piece about it and it's easier to move on because every time you bring it up, and this is what I heard from people, it just, there's, it feels like there's no winning. There's no like, there's no way you can say these things in a way that, especially if you're a black performer, that that the majority of black people will be like, oh, I'm glad you brought this up, you know? So, and then we were, and, and just to be clear, we were, when we started this project, Bill Cosby was still in prison. So people said no when he was in prison. As soon as he got out, I was like, oh, all those people are like, oh, thank God I said no. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, almost like, you know, breathing a sigh of relief for them for saying no, because I didn't know what we were going to do. I found myself wishing I could see Hannibal talk about that moment in your film. And, you know, like you, I'd like know him well enough to have his email address. You you know him a little better than I do. But um, I, I also thought to myself, if I was Hannibal Burris, would I want to appear in mm -hmm. this film? This was me doing mm -hmm. a stand-up set that I didn't even know someone was taping, just trying mm -hmm. to do something like it's not material. It's just him talking to getting something off his chest. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. has become yeah. the defining moment in the career of Hannibal's a great comic. I'm sure that every day of his life, he has to deal with the consequences of that, whether it's people who only want to talk to him about that or people who consider him, uh, you know, a traitor to his race or um, mm -hmm. his gender or whatever else. And I just thought, mm -hmm how hard it is for anyone to decide to put themselves into this stream of BS and mm -hmm. how that stream of BS was sort of knowingly and willfully manipulated and weaponized by mm -hmm. Bill Cosby and Bill Cosby's team. And also just the the legend of Bill Cosby is weaponizing it without anybody having to do anything. Yeah. The the memories of Bill Cosby is also stopping. So I think I don't you know, I don't to be clear, I don't blame anybody who said no. I talked to people who were very connected to Bill Cosby through the Cosby show. I talked to people, I talked to comics who have worked with him or talked to comics who certainly have been in have been in more personal contact with him than I am. I've never met Bill Cosby. But I wish more people said yes, but I don't blame them for, say, for saying no. I, I like I, I, the more no's I got, the more I realized, oh, this isn't their problem. This is my problem. Like, I, <laughs> like I, you know, it'd be easy to go. You people aren't brave enough. Wait, all of you are saying no. Huh? Did I make the bad call? <laughs> Am I doing the wrong thing? Maybe I've made a mistake. I mean, I went on to YouTube and watched the trailer for the show the other day. Um, uh -oh. there's almost, you know, there's very few comments. It's on a, it, it's on the Sundance channels, uh, oh, yeah. not the television Sundance channel, but the channel of the Sundance Institute. Um, there's only a couple of comments on there and, you know, maybe I knew better, but like the first top level comment with the most votes says, I hope Kamau will have the courage to explore all or at least most of the issues around Cosby. It would be sad if he just parades women and repeats the same old tired narrative of rape. It would be disappointing if it's another piece that ignores some of the issues around lack of evidence, false memory, borderline women relationship, 
Cosby's own personality disorders, if any, uh, consent, hedonistic party culture, and, and it goes uh, <laughs> on and on and on from there. And uh, then the first, the reply to that is from from another user is, well, this docu series itself isn't interested in hearing Bill Cosby's side of the story. This more than likely a hit piece. I roll emoji. Um, and it could be if one were not you or me having looked at that easy or one were you before you made this easy to assume that this was a settled matter in people's minds and opinions, because at this point, 60 ish women have accused Bill Cosby of rape and sexual assault. At what point did you have to engage with the fact that it wasn't a settled matter in the minds of many, many people. Well, I mean, I knew from watching Surviving R. Kelly, Dream Hampton's incredible series, that these things aren't ever settled matters for some people. So I, and I, you know, I mean, and that, I don't know what will happen with me going forward or what will happen with the film, but like, you know, they had death threats and they had to like shut screenings down, I believe, because of people who were that fervent in their defense of R. Kelly. So I knew, I knew there's a, there's a, there is a percentage of people, percentage of black folks who, as I said, un- I understand where it comes from, want to protect black men at all costs. So that's I sort of knew that. I don't know how many people that is. I don't know what the percentage is. I think it's I think the Bill Cosby percentage is probably different than the R. Kelly percentage, but I certainly understood that. I think I thought like, you know, and this is where I, I think I thought, well, when once I get all these if I get a chorus of these famous people to talk about it, it will help drown out some of those, some of those voices. Well, once we didn't get those people, it's like, okay, now, now it's just about how good this thing is. <laughs> like, it's not about, it's not going to, it's not going to win because a famous person sitting in a chair. It's going to win. It's going to, it's going to be effective. And when I say win, I don't mean win an award. I mean, it's not going to make its point unless by famous people, it's going to make its point by the argument it makes and how it makes it. So I was also very clear that like some people are, are going to hate it and never watch it. And I just have to be prepared for the fact that like some people are going to are going to say all sorts of things about it and never watch it. And that's sort of something you just have to sort of like and I've done that from United Shades. Like, you know, it's just like I hate I, that the the fact that I'm a black man married to a white woman, that's already enough for some people to go nothing this guy does is good. Before you made this film, had you ever asked a woman directly about an experience of sexual assault? I, my mom has told me about a time that she was sexually assaulted. My, I've talked to my wife about experiences she's had, uh, you know, around, you know, men and their inappropriate behavior through the work of United Shades. I have had these conversations before talking about, uh, you know, sexual assault through many different issues. So I've had these conversations before, but I wouldn't, so I've maybe have had more than most, but that doesn't mean I've had enough of them. And I doesn't, and I was certainly the, I haven't had the kind of long, tail conversation I had with the women who sat down for the interviews for the for this project. These women are extraordinarily brave to share these stories with you. Were you scared to talk to them about these things that are so hard to talk about? And, and were you scared to have the responsibility of representing them? I mean, yeah, the short answer is yes. <laughs> uh, the first person, the first, we had done a bunch of interviews. And then the first survivor we talked to was Victoria Valentino, who's in the first episode. And I remember we were all the crew. We had like a talk about how to handle this, how to deal with her. We had a lot of talks about like, you know, even about like how to address her, how to give her space. 
And then she walked in just like full of light and love and was just like happy to be there and like really like very, very friendly and effusive in a way that none of us were expecting. And so the conversation really was a much easier conversation than I expected, even when we got into the part about the sexual assault. And as we show in in the first episode, the most harrowing part of the conversation is her talking about her son drowning. And none of us knew that story. We just sort of knew we were talking to her as a Cosby survivor. But then it became clear, like, the most effective way to tell this story is to try to hear as much of this woman's story outside of her experience with Bill Cosby as possible. She had lost her her son, her six-year-old son, in a drowning accident just a few weeks before she met Bill Cosby and was, like, actively in mourning at the time that... um, Yes. The events she describes take, took place. And that's another thing. Like, why would you lie about that? Like, what is the, like, you know, again, why would you, why would she lie about this? What, what is the, what, where does, what is the gain? Where does that put you? What did you not expect to hear from anyone that, that you heard? So all the survivors are certainly individuals. And while they are, while they are bound together by Bill Cosby, they are all very, you know, you, some of them, you can, they're all handling this in different ways. I talked to Lisa Lott, Lubin, and I'm now realizing, I'm like, is her name Lubin? Anyway, we talked to a woman named Lisa Lott who met Cosby through her being a model in Vegas. She, even though she was drugged and doesn't remember what happened and woke up at home and can't remember anything and then later realized, oh, I was, I was, I was sexually assaulted, she still can talk about Cosby and the good things he did. And and does and seems like this is a thing that happened to me, but it does not define me, but she has also her and her husband have become activists to turn over the uh, statute of limitation laws around the country around rape. In some in some states there were I think they were only 4 years you had four, a victim had uh, a survivor had 4 years to report and they have worked hard to expand the statute of limitation laws and and get some of them repealed completely. And so to me the idea that one you could still hold some she appears in the series before you hear her story. You can you can still hold some joy for the good things you got from Bill Cosby. You can still talk about the experience, and then you can also become an activist for other for other survivors. Is that I just was like, it was very clear to me that we need to include this activism because again, it's not about Bill Cosby for many of these women. It's about making creating a safer world. You had to decide in apportioning the you know four-ish hours of time that you have in the series um, how to talk about Bill Cosby being good at entertainment Mm -hmm. great at entertainment and being an important figure and trailblazing figure specifically in the history of African Americans in entertainment not just because it was important to the story of Bill Cosby, the person about whom the film, uh, uh, f- who is sort of the subject of the film, sort of, but also because that context is so essential to the way that we understood Cosby and uh, understood the things, uh, the horrible things that he did. Who did you talk to about how to balance those things and? And how did you, you know, what lodestar did you find about how to talk about good things Bill Cosby did? I mean, for me, a lot of this starts as an idea that sort of emerges in my head when 
after these women started to come forward, I don't know what number we're at, but when it was clear that like there, a, a dam had been broken and there was just all these women coming forward every day, there were, felt like there were more women coming forward to say they had been assaulted or raped by Bill Cosby. In that, a story came out that said that a documentary filmmaker, a black woman, was working on, uh, named Noni Robinson, was working on a documentary about the work that Bill Cosby had done to integrate the stunt industry for black performers. That, that before I Spy, if a, if a black actor needed a stunt performer, they would take a white stunt man and literally paint him black. Because we're talking about the days of like, you know, black and white television, but also on color for television. Not paint him brown. They wouldn't match the black man's skin tone. They would, and it was called painting down. And Bill Cosby saw this on I Spy about to happen. And he said, I, and from, from all accounts said, I refuse to be on the show unless you find a black stunt performer for my stunts. I won't be on the show. And this is like, he's a young comedian. It's his big shot. The first season of the show. And he says, I won't, I, you have to go find a black stunt performer. And stunt, the stunt industry points to that moment for being when things changed, not like, and there, you know, there may have been other moments, but people say that was the, the moment that, that things shifted. And I remember reading that story in the Hollywood Reporter about how the, they had stopped, shut down production on the documentary and they were going to remove, they had gotten a, an interview with Bill Cosby for the doc, but they were going to remove it from the film and try to figure out what was going to happen next. But then I was like, well, how do you tell the story of the stunt industry and black stunt performers without that part of it? And so I couldn't help but go, there's something in this story that is worthy, but I don't know that you can tell this story without telling the story of the other things without telling the stories of the assault. So that was the thing that made me go, there's got to be a way to tell this whole thing. And so when I think about projects that I looked at that I felt like had done a version of that, and I'm not comparing myself to this, but like Ezra Edelman's O.J. Simpson Made in America managed to, in one moment, get you to go, oh my God, O.J. Simpson is not a good person. And in the next moment go, he was really good at football. And it's sort of, and because of the way that doc was put together, you were able to, in some sense, enjoy the football highlights while also then going, he also killed, he, I believe he killed Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. And because of the way it was put together, I just always remember like, that's how you'd have to do it. If you're going to tell Bill Cosby's story, you'd have to be able to put these things in one, in one basket together. And then ultimately it becomes like, I have to say that the crew of people I worked with, the producers, the editors, associate editors, like the archival producer, it became an all hands on deck situation where we would watch cuts and it would be like, is that too far? Is that too much? Do we need to figure this out? Like, and so it was like a constant, like sort of like tweaking the mix. And, you know, I still am like, I don't know if we will find out if we got it right once it hits, once it gets to the general public. We'll finish up my interview with W. Kamau Bell after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't. Rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. 
Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, W. Kamau Bell, hosts the United Shades of America on CNN, for which he's won several Emmys. He directed a new docuseries called We Need to Talk About Cosby. There's a really intense scene that is raw footage of a journalist in 2014 at a junket for uh, Bill and Camille Cosby having an exhibition of African-American art from their personal collection. And this is after Hannibal's bit has gone viral. This is after there are many allegations uh, against Cosby, though not as many as there have been since. What turned my stomach about this clip is Cosby says he's not going to talk about it. He's asked about it. He's asked about the allegations. He says he's not going to talk about it. Then at the end of the interview, he looks at the journalist and says, I want your assurance that you're not going to run that. Now, can I get something from you? What's that? That none of that will be shown? I... I can't promise that myself, but you didn't say anything. I know I didn't say anything, but I'm asking your integrity that since I didn't want to say anything, but I did answer you in terms of I don't want to say anything, of what value will it have? I don't think it will. Ma'am, what'd you say? Sorry? What did you say? I don't think it has any value either. Yeah. And I would appreciate it if it was scuttled. I hear you. I, I will tell that to my editors, and, and, and I think that they will understand. Well, I, I think if you want to consider yourself to be serious, mm-hmm. that it will not appear anywhere. It reminded me of the intensity of Cosby's defenses of himself, which I think are relatively unusual in these circumstances. I think in these circumstances, typically people leave the defense to others and withdraw. Yeah. What was it like for you, somebody who was making a film about Cosby, to watch directly what happened when he was directly engaged about this? Well, it's funny because that comes out of uh, a similar interview that I heard on NPR, I believe it was Scott Simon, about the same press junket uh, on Morning Edition, where he asks Bill and Camille about the art, and at the end, same th- it's a, it's the same exact thing where you could feel that like <laughs> either Scott Simon or his editor was like, you you have to ask. And yeah. at this point, it was after Hannibal's bit had come up, so the questions were all about the comedian who did the joke, not about women who were, he had assaulted. Let me play Scott. Um, I say Scott by first name like I've met him more than one time in my life. The one time I did meet him, he was very nice to me. uh, And I was 19 years old, uh, so he didn't have to be. But this is Scott Simon, and this is audio that was played on NPR. Um, This isn't, you know, cut from the interview. This is is what was heard on the air. This this question gives me no pleasure, Mr. Cosby. But there have been uh, serious allegations raised about you in recent days. You're shaking your head no. 
I, I'm in the news business. I have to ask the question. Do you, do you have any response to those charges? Shaking your head no. Uh, there are people who love you who might like to hear from you about this. I want to give you the chance. All right. Um, Camille and Bill Cosby, they have lent 62 pieces from their collection of African and African-American artists to create an exhibit called Conversations, African and African-American Artworks in Dialogue. It's now on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art through early 2016. Thank you both Thank for you. joining us. Thank you. No, I think you could, a, a journalist could quibble with the tone of Scott Simon's questions there. Um, but I think it's very much to his credit that, that he, I think that tone was in the hopes of getting an actual response. And it's very much to the, his credit and his producer's credit that they, that they ran that as it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's, the, that's actually the interview that I, that I remember hearing at the time and just being blown away by, cause you can hear so many things things in there it's i mean in that silence and i really i've always appreciated scott simon saying you're shaking your head no because he knows he's on the radio <laughs> like he's yeah. like and i really appreciate the fact that he's like my the there's nobody watching this so i have to i have to narrate this for them and because cosby knows he's on the radio yes and cosby knows he's on the radio but even scott simon saying you're shaking your head no means that Co basically is cosby's answer it's like it really is yeah. like it's a delicate dance that scott's doing there and Again, I feel the same. I feel I give those journalists credit for asking, like because they could have just because because it, it's also like if you hear the whole interview, it's after a whole interview of them talking about how lovely the art is. So it's not an easy thing at the end of an interview to be like, "Thanks, that was so great." One more question that you absolutely don't want to hear, and so at the and then they and then they wrap it up with the art, which again, it's just like and you hear Camille say, "Thank you." Like it's just sort of like it's a really surreal moment, and I think the thing to me that's that that stuck with me about that is that like embedded in there is Bill Cosby's power that you can hear the way that Scott Simon's addressing him. He's really giving Bill Cosby as much sort of like gentle touch as possible because he, cause I don't know how old Scott Simon is, but in some sense, it's like you're sitting with somebody who's your senior, who's a senior member of show business, who you also feel lucky submit sat down for the interview. And so you're excited to be there. And in this moment you go, you just want to talk about, man, I love the Cosby show and man, you, you're doing such good work, but I have to ask this question. So that, that interview particularly has always stuck with me. And so whenever we talked about putting this, whenever we talked about putting this together, I was always sure that that kind of moment had to be in the film. And the one we have that ended up in the film goes on even longer. Cause you see Bill Cosby, like actually like talking to the journalist and talking to the other person in the room who's with the journalist and talking to his own person about, you have to call his basically saying you have to call his boss. And I think you need to get on the phone with his I will, yeah. person immediately. Okay. And then we have Annette John Hall, who's a Philly reporter, talk about how that kind of thing was pretty usual for Cosby to like call and threaten people's jobs and, and call the media. Mark Lamont Hill talks about how his boss at Temple got called because Bill Cosby wasn't happy with the article he wrote. That, and that's one of the things that like your average person, I don't think, understand, knows that. So to me, that's something that, that felt like this is new information to most of us. Did you invite Bill Cosby to be interviewed for the film? No, we did not. I mean, as was, I said, first of all, when we started, he was in prison and it was very, and we talked about it. And I mean, certainly it seems like if you're going to do something and get buzz, that would be a good way to get buzz. But it just became very clear to me 
especially once we got the survivors involved, this is not really a, this is about how do we deal with all this? It's not about sitting Bill Cosby in a chair and having him deny it again. It's about how do those of us who believe these survivors and how do those of us who feel connected to Bill Cosby and feel inspired by Bill Cosby and still know that inside of us somewhere we connect to, to Bill Cosby's work, how do we deal with it and how do we actively then engage in a way to create a safer world? Like, so for me, like it, it just never was about like, and the, the splashy interview with Bill Cosby. And to be quite honest, he, he can get the cameras whenever he wants to. I don't think he needs us. Whereas these survivors and these conversations are not in the same position. As we talk about this now, the, uh, the series hasn't started being seen by the public. Um, are you comfortable with where you sit? And, um, you know, what you know you're going to catch? No. <laughs> I laugh because it's like, you know, all day long, it's basically the conversation I have with my wife. It's the conversation I have with the people I work with. It's the last thing I think about as I go to bed. It's the first thing I think about in the morning. I'm having dreams about it. Like, you know, I, I you know, and, and I don't think I'm going to deal with the kind of pushback that Dream Hampton got uh, for surviving R. Kelly because I think there's an embedded way in which women get more attacks because they're women. I like that people feel like the work I do is important and it also is somehow nourishing and that it also is exposing who the bad people are. And I know some of those people who see me in the world and like to see me are going to feel differently because they don't see Bill Cosby the way I see Bill Cosby. So, and I, and I also know that I can't recognize those people from across the street. So I, you know, I, I, I sort of have this sense of like feeling like this is going to shift things for me and not necessarily in a way that is like, it's not necessarily going to make me more popular. It's, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the net, the, the there's going to be a math equation at some point, you know, I, I, you know, because of COVID, I haven't really done a lot of stand. I haven't done, I haven't done any stand up in COVID. And also it was after our third daughter was born. I sort of slowed down because I wanted to be, I was already traveling a lot. And I sort of feel like in some sense, maybe this is, maybe I've written, maybe this film retires me from stand up comedy. I don't know. There's some sort of math in my head that like, I don't know how you stand up in front of people after this film and just go, man, airports, Ugh, that food on the planes. <laughs> that's weird. It's not good. Well, Kamau, I'm I'm grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It's always nice to get to talk to you. I hope I'll get to see you in person sometime soon. It is really great through the craziness of this business to have people that you were with back in the day who are also still in this business and still doing good things. So I'm always happy to talk to you. Well, I'm, it's a it's really good work that you've done, and I'm I'm proud to know you. Same here, sir. Thank you for thank you for having me. W. Kamau Bell. His new documentary series is called We Need to Talk About Cosby. It premieres this Sunday, January 30th on Showtime. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I was lucky enough to get a visit from... uh, head honcho over there at York Lock and Key, who was nice enough to rebuild the barrel lock on my treasure cabinet. He said he needed to uh, machine a new hook, barb, maybe? He couldn't get parts for the lock, and he couldn't get a one-to-one replacement. Anyway, 
the best part was, at the end, he said, Ah, thanks for having me do this. It was really fun. He's a nice guy. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it with us. I know you've probably heard me say that a thousand times, but man, the Go Team are so great. Go check out their records. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews in all of those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.